This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is Dave Scott, creator and host of Spaced Out Radio. He's a trained and seasoned journalist whose broadcasting career spans multiple decades. Dave is also an experiencer with numerous UFO sightings, paranormal encounters, and has crossed paths with Sasquatch and extraterrestrial beings on multiple occasions. In this episode, Dave and I discuss his career in radio, how he got started, and some of his influences throughout that journey. We also touch on how the industry has changed over time. In the second part of the episode, we talk about Dave's experiences with UFOs and the paranormal, his encounters with Sasquatch, aliens, and a being he refers to as the Angel of Death, and how these experiences have led to his development of certain psychic abilities. Then we talk about how all of these things have impacted his life, and Dave gets very personal in the latter part of the interview, and shares an incredibly profound message for experiencers, members of the community, critics of the phenomenon, and even those with a passing interest in these topics. So be sure to listen all the way to the end. I'm so grateful that Dave spent this time with me and shared his experiences. His willingness to talk about such intimate topics are evidence of his integrity and demonstrate how much he truly cares about this subject. He literally left me without words multiple times during this conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Dead End Radio, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Oh, no problem, man. Thank you so much for having us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm doing real good. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, I was uh, looking over your bio on the website, spacedoutradio.com, uh, and I didn't even realize that you had had all of these experiences uh, that are mentioned in the bio. I did know that you had uh, seen UFOs and actually had encounters with beings, but uh, there's a lot of things in the bio that I was not aware of. And it's, it's a pretty interesting bio, um, a biography, I should say, or summary of your biography. But before we get into that, could we talk a little bit about your career in radio? Sure. Okay. Um, so I, I saw that you were uh, you started out in radio in 98. Yes. I, uh, you know, after kind of running around, uh, lifeless for my first few years of my early twenties, uh, I kind of had my heart broken because from the time I was three years old until I was about 20 years old, the only thing I really wanted to do was fly jet fighters in the Canadian armed forces. And, you know, when I was 18 years old, uh, Canada went to war in the first Gulf War uh, when Saddam Hussein had uh, taken Iraq into Kuwait and Canada was part of the coalition force there. And then coming out of that, that conflict, the Canadian prime minister at the time, a gentleman named Brian Mulroney, had cut the defense budget by about $16 billion shortly after that war. And it literally froze any sort of hiring for the Canadian Armed Forces, which also included fighter pilots. And so I was just absolutely devastated because I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to go. 
And so I, I really had no interest in going to college, but I knew that I had to do something. And so I, I, you know, like any young man trying to find himself in this world, I took a bunch of menial jobs and uh, one of my jobs previous to, to getting into uh, broadcasting was becoming a, a, um, a hockey instructor where I, I did that for three years. I really enjoyed it. And by the time the, um, the freezing on the hiring for the Canadian Armed Forces had ended, I had been working at a job one day and I was working in a warehouse for 10 bucks an hour when back then that was a pretty big wage. And, and three hours into the job, I had 500 pounds of frozen beef fall out of a container right on my leg and tore my knee up, tearing my ACL and my MCL and my cartilage. And I had to go for knee surgery and I had pins put in my knees and I knew the dream was over of flying. And that really, really hit me hard. And I almost went into a depression and then I became a hockey instructor uh, shortly after that. But after three years of that and, you know, struggling to, to find a, a proper paycheck, I, I knew at that point I had to go to school. And so one of the things that I had really enjoyed was public speaking. And I figured, you know what? I know nothing about radio. I'll apply to college. And uh, I got turned down the first time. The second time I made it. And uh, after a two-year course, at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. I graduated in 1998 and started my radio career uh, on Vancouver Island at a small radio station that's no longer even in existence. And it was, it was kind of cool. I, I did that for a couple of years living on Vancouver Island. I hated every moment that I lived on the island. Not that it was what, because it wasn't beautiful or that the people weren't nice. The one thing that really hit me really hard was that a I had no friends there and b uh, it was expensive to live there and I felt really trapped living on the island and and it was it was tough for me and so after a couple of years I applied at a radio station in Vancouver I got a job in in sports there and I absolutely loved it for 7 years and you know the one thing that got me out of radio was uh, it wasn't what I did or the people or anything along those lines. Uh, I, I worked for a gentleman in radio who was not a nice man. And he really took the fun out of the job for me. And uh, I knew it was time to leave. So I left there and I got into uh, uh, some financial type work, which I had been doing for a number of years. And then my own personal experiences out of the blue started in 2011. And from there, three years later, I started Spaced Out Radio on the guidance from a, an, an influence from a gentleman who I absolutely adore named Johnny Enoch, who convinced me to start Spaced Out Radio after me emceeing his UFO conference back in 2014 in Vancouver. So it was, uh, it's been a whirlwind. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody, um, but it's also been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of cool people. I've talked to some incredible 
people, both back in my real radio days and now my spaced out radio days, which I guess is real radio too. But um, it's been a wild ride, man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Now, if I would have known that there was this much competition, this, this many podcasts out there, this many YouTube channels, I don't know if I would have done it. Uh, but in this case, naivety has been my biggest asset. So I just roll with it. So you say you first discovered that you wanted to be a fighter pilot when you're about three years old. Yeah. Um, and my podcast is about the cold war. It's cold war centric, but you know, I, I talk about all topics. Um, but do you know where that interest in becoming oh, yeah. a fighter pilot came from? What? Oh yeah. The town I grew up in uh, called Abbotsford, British Columbia had one of the largest air shows in the world and still does. And, uh, I remember my dad used to help out there. Uh, but my dad was very involved with, uh, minor hockey back then. And, uh, minor hockey would have a, a food booth there where, you know, cooking up hamburgers, hot dogs, French fries in order to help raise money for the association. And so he would be cooking there and he'd bring me in. The event was three days, but dad would always take me there on the, on the Sunday. And, you know, this is back then when I, I was like three years old, four years old, five years old to 18 years old, where, you know, back then you didn't have to worry about kids wandering off and just, you know, I'd say, Hey daddy, I'm going to run up, you know, me and my friend, we're going to run up and, and go look at the planes. And, and so that's what we would do. You know, I mean, you know, I could never imagine allowing my seven-year-old son to wander in a crowd of 30, 40,000 people alone and, and go look at a bunch of multi-million dollar aircraft. But going back to that, back to then, what really, really convinced me that that's what I wanted to do was Canada had uh, a fighter jet called the cf-101 voodoo and they were hand-me-downs from the united states air force because the air force really didn't like them uh, but i loved them they were loud they were crusty they were salty and they were mean looking and and i loved them and they were from uh, the squadron was the 409 nighthawks and they were based out of comox british columbia at the Air Force Base there on Vancouver Island. And uh, I remember, you know, every year they would open up the show because they were so loud. They wanted to get people going. And they were always flying in a formation of four. And I was just in awe of these voodoos. And I'll tell you, I hated, like in 1983, when they retired the voodoos to go to the CF-18 Hornet, I absolutely hated the Hornet, hated it because I like, I cried as a kid that, that the voodoos weren't going to be around the air show anymore because I, you know, I had no idea about how technology works or anything like that. I just knew that I wanted to be a pilot of a voodoo and I was never going to get a chance to now. And I cried as a kid, like every jet that I drew was always a voodoo, you know, it was always, uh, the two Pratt and Whitney four, 404 engines or 440 engines that they had blasting out. And, and, you know, they were, you know, 
for a lot of the American people out there, it'd be the equivalent of watching F4 Phantom fly. I mean, the Phantoms was were just, they were magical in their own way. Well, the Voodoos were like that to me. And I, when the CF-18 t- took over, I hated the Hornet. Hated the Hornet. How dare that Hornet come in and take my Voodoos away? But since then, I kind of fell in love with the Hornets. And and I'm, I'm almost sad that they're at the end of their lifespan or getting close to it after you know 35 years but um yeah man love my hornets love my hornets now but you know military aviation has always been uh, a huge part of my life not as much the last decade but from growing up um till i was about 28 years old i really let it sink in and and uh when i was about 18 years old it was just it was so real it was like within my grasps I got to sit in a hornet I met this fighter pilot and I got to sit sit in his hornet for about 45 minutes just him and I I'm sitting in the cockpit and he's like dude you can do whatever you want in here he goes we just can't start it up and it was like just a little piece of heaven and I would have loved to have got in that aircraft and took off but you know, Lord knows, I don't know what the hell I would have been doing, but, um, yeah. So anybody who flies fighters, I always have that little bit of jealousy about them. Do you have to pay for college in Canada? Yes. Yeah. It's not as expensive as it is in the United States. You know, it all depends on what you're taking too. You know, like my broadcasting career, I think my student loans were maxed out at like $25,000 or something like that. You know, I always love to say when people say, Hey, you got a great voice. I said, I should, I paid 25 grand and no surgery for it. You know? So, um, that, that is something, I mean, you know, it also brings up a good point too. Uh, you know, a lot of people who podcast and a lot of people who get in front of the microphone, no, please don't take offense. Um, you don't know how to talk. All right. And, you know, so when people say, gee, you know, why does your show sound so different than what we're used to in the paranormal? And I, I, I'm usually like, well, that's because you didn't go to broadcasting school. You didn't learn how to breathe. You didn't know how to uh, inflect words, uh, you know, or read sentences or, you know, uh, if you, if you listen to a lot of people out there when they're talking and they finish a sentence, they'll stop really quiet because that's usually a sign that you're winding down. Whereas any broadcaster, they go straight, really hard, right to the period. Well, thanks for the tip. I'm going to call this episode broadcasting 101. You know, I don't mean that to be insultive or anything like that. Cause you know, I have a love hate relationship with a lot of the podcasters that are out there. And, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that there is so much, um, that there's so much out there that a lot of people aren't being afraid to get on camera, get on YouTube or start their podcasts. I think the more information, the better, but for those who there's a lot of people out there too, who are doing it straight out of their own ego and straight out of their own uh, way of wanting to do things that, you know, they don't understand that I don't need a play-by-play, you know, 
we're not we're not calling a hockey game or a baseball game or a basketball or football game. We're just talking aliens or UFOs or ghosts or whatever it may be. So that is probably you know one of my pet peeves of of a lot of the podcasting that's going on out there. You know, but the amount of information that we are getting now from people who are taking a chance to get the word out is pretty darn good. What it has done, and I and it's funny because Dave Schrader and I had this conversation a few months ago. Um, what it has done is it's taken it's almost taken away the career or the potential careers of a show like spaced out radio to amplify and take off like yes we have taken off yes you know as much as i don't like admitting it i do know that we are one of the bigger shows out there um i do know and i don't take that for granted uh, at all you know we worked hard for that but Back in my day and back in your day, before there was podcasting, there was only one radio show that did this, and that was Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell, God rest his soul. And, you know, when when you, you look at it today, there's literally about 20, 30,000 podcasts in North America alone of UFOs, aliens, consciousness, psychic ability, paranormal, ghosts, dogman, Bigfoot fairies, you name it. It's broken down to such minuscule areas that you don't go searching for the quality anymore. People are going to search for what intrigues them. And so if their only interest is mermaids, well, you're going to listen to a weekly mermaid podcast because, you know, those nightly shows aren't going to be touching on mermaids enough. And if you're lucky, if it's once every couple of months, you know, so it's really diluted the audience, but if you're an audience member, I mean, if you're a show host, pardon me, it sucks. But if you're an audience member, you also have the benefit of being able to listen to whom you want to listen to and at any time that you want. And so there is a, there is Andrew, there's a big, there's a big, uh, um, block in between that because, People who listen to long, long form radio formats really are looking for that old school approach that made them smile in the middle of the night. You know, we don't do the podcast, you know, like if you listen to 98% of the paranormal podcasts out there, they're all like, well, what kind of gear do you use? Well, I use a K2. Ew, you use a K2 meter? Yeah, I used to use that one, but I grew up. You know, I mean, you hear that type of rhetoric and jargon all the time, and you have to bypass that. One of the things that we try and do, and 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 one of the words that I always have remembered, and it was beaten into me by this witch of a teacher. And I, you know, it was one of those teachers that I absolutely hated going to her class back in broadcasting school. But when I finally became a broadcaster and a journalist. I absolutely adored everything that she said because it was so true and so right. And the one word that she said, I remember her saying this in class number one, she goes, the only word I want you to learn this year is focus. She goes, every class I'm going to ask you, what is your focus? And 
I'm like, well, I'm telling, talking stories here. Like I, all I want to do is talk about hockey and baseball. And, you know, I don't give a care about, you know, somebody who is in a midlife crisis, buying a Ferrari and racks it around a telephone pole 10 minutes after he buys it. I don't care about that, you know, but everything has to have focus. And if you have focus, your show will never, ever go wrong. All right. And if you stick to that focus, your show is going to continually improve to the point where you're going to be able to say, damn, that, that's a good show. That's a good broadcast right there. I'm pretty impressed with myself, you know, and it's funny because every night after we're done the show and I log off, you know, from and say goodnight and I start my editing process because I have to get it to my radio stations. I sit there and I think that was a good show. That was a really, really good show. And, you know, I always kind of think, okay, well, where can I improve? What did I do wrong? Where was I caught paying attention to a chat room or, you know, because I, I'm a one man show here. So, you know, I don't have a producer here. I don't have, you know, assistants who are, you know, monitoring the chat rooms. I do it all. And thank God I have undiagnosed ADD for it. Right. But, um, I really try hard to make sure that I break everything down. And I try to remember where it was good, where it was bad, where I won, where I lost, what can I do to get better? And if I have a great show, how, how do I make the next one great? What can I take from that one to go to the next one? But that being said, I have a really bad habit of I never listen to myself. I will never go into my archives and listen to myself and say, okay, where could I have improved here? Where could I have improved there? Uh, I've always been like that when I was in radio. The one thing that I hated was having to do radio critiques with with my bosses um, because they're, I mean, let's face it. If, if you lose your voice, you lose your focus, you have nothing. You know, give me the meat, the details. And that's what it comes down to. Focus. Thank you for uh, that little that $25,000 education in five minutes there. Appreciate that, man. No uh, problem. Because there, you answered about 10 of the questions I had on my, on my uh, little bullet points here. Ooh, um, sorry. No, no, sorry. Hey, that's cool. No, it, it's good because, you know, you cut out the middleman and went straight to the, <laughs> straight to the meat of the, the topic. Um, uh, because yeah, one of the first questions that I, I or one of the next questions I was going to ask you, what has changed in the industry since you started? Well, you, you know, it's funny. Um, when I started spaced out radio, I'd never heard a podcast before. Didn't even know what they were. All right. I didn't even know how to download them. I, you know, I would go into these tech stores cause I would see everybody walking around with these little iPods, you know, and then the iPod nano came out and I'm looking on there and I'm like, well, how the heck do you, you get music on there. Like, do you, do you have to buy it? Do you have to, you know, like, you know, where, where's the cassettes or the disc player, you know, that you plug in. Like, I honestly, I had no clue, no clue that there was all of these download areas. And, and I had no idea that there was all these podcasts and, and everything. I had no clue up until 
Um, I started the show. I had never even downloaded one. Didn't know how to download them. Didn't know anything. And it's kind of funny to me because when I left radio in 2007, I left for good. Okay. I was never coming back. I, I had made a promise to myself that, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is my new career. This is my new path. Uh, it's all about the Benjamins now. It's, you know, I've, I've had my fun in radio. I've met a lot of cool people, but now I'm 34 years old and I need to be able to, to start in, uh, taking care of better care of myself, better care of my family. I mean, dude, I was, I was one of those kids, man, that I never got taught credit. I never got taught the importance of, of having, you know, a car payment or a credit card or anything at 34 years old, I'd never had a credit card. I'd never really, uh, had any type of life experience outside of what my parents had taught me. And God knows God bless my parents. Cause I love them. And I'm, and I'm proud at 47 years old that I still have both my parents. Cause I know a lot of people out there don't, but man, did they give me some bad financial advice? Right. And, uh, you know, to this day, I'm 47 now, and I, I still see myself playing catch up quite a bit in order to get my own life going for a lot of things that I want to do, whether it's savings or whether it's buying an RV or traveling a little bit more. So, I mean, the, the whole idea behind it is, is when I started this show, I knew nothing of podcasting, but you know, the areas that we, that we work in, We've diluted the topics too much. For instance, if you take Bigfoot, you have this, you know, and we can thank social media for this. You have the, you just don't have Bigfoot groups anymore. You have the Bigfoot for the scientists, the Bigfoot for the skeptics, the, the Bigfoot that's, uh, uh, that's first nations. You have the Bigfoot that's, that's interdimensional. You have the, the alien Bigfoot from the former planet Maldock that exploded a hundred million years ago, you have the groups that think Bigfoot are people too, and should have voting rights. You know, it's broken down into so many subcategories down. So, you know, these topics are all one giant subreddit category. And, and I think that's what we've done is we've taken out the knowledge of this creature. Okay. It doesn't matter whether, and I'm using Bigfoot as an example here, but it goes for dog, man. It goes for UFOs. It goes for aliens. It goes for ghosts, goes for everything. We've diluted these topics so finitely now that we're not willing to hear arguments. We're not willing to hear the other side. We're not willing to have critical discussion on anything because if my opinion disagrees with yours, we have to fight now. And then I have, we have to get insultive and then we have to start doxing and, and it gets ugly real bad. You know, there are people out there who, who just refuse to hear any other side outside of their own now. And we don't want to have critical thinking in this field. And I believe that's a big reason why we don't solve anything because we have taken the message that we believe and we have we have diluted it so much through podcasts, through YouTube channels, through 
websites, through forums, and everything along those lines, that there isn't time anymore for critical thinking and critical discussion. And until these fields get around that and all of these podcasts get around that too, we're not going anywhere. We're just regurgitating everything that's already been said. I share your frustration in, in that, uh, in that way. So many people, and I'm, I'm a big user of Twitter. I'm on Twitter all day long and I see the UFO Twitter community just at odds with each other all the time over different things. Oh yeah. And some of it's so not even important. Like why, why would you be arguing over something that is inconsequential to the bigger topic? You know what you hit the UFO Twitter is it's a, is its own anomaly and worst enemy at the same time. There are some brilliant people who are on UFO Twitter and, and they are, they have worked. And some of them, I don't even know how they've worked it, but I know that many of them have worked really hard to get a lot of good information out there. You know, a lot of these new UFO researchers have really come out of the woodwork thanks to what the To the Stars Academy has has brought forward. And, you know, I've been, if you've listened to my show over time, you, you know that I have been very critical of some of the actions of the TTSA. And I have been, you know, I've had a new asshole ripped many a times on UFO Twitter in regards to my stance on a lot of these and everybody, oh, you're a, you're a, you're a TTSA hater. You're a disinformation person. Uh, you're this, you're that. No, I'm not. I just want critical questions answered. All right. I want to know why on their first press conference that they had on October 11th, 2017, how do you hold a press conference with no press? I want to know how the TTSA was able to put their logo on United States Navy videos and take credit for those videos. I want to know why for so long have they um, denied media requests to the majority of late night UFO shows outside of the legend, George Knapp. Okay. They used to go on Jimmy church. They've kind of cut Jimmy off now. Okay. But if you're not a supporter of the two, the stars Academy, and I'm a supporter of no one, I, I try and call it down the middle, but I have a lot of questions, you know, and it's funny because UFO Twitter is like, well, I'll answer that for you. No, I don't want the answer from you. Your answer means nothing. And that's, I'm not saying that to be insultive, but I'm saying that to be critical of saying, look, you're a fanboy or you're a fangirl of the To the Stars Academy. Yes, they have done some incredible work. Yes, Chris Mellon is probably one of the smartest human beings on this planet regarding this subject. Yes, I think Lou Elizondo. And I don't care what anybody says. I think Lou Elizondo is the first man in black to come out in public. 
Okay. I think Lou Elizondo is trying to do some very good work, but TT UFO Twitter doesn't want to hear that. They want to, they're like, you know what, if your questions suck and all this kind of stuff, uh, you're, you're just being critical. You're just being an a-hole. You're just being this, you're just pissed off that they won't give you an interview. And they're, they're going on with somebody, you know, a fake journalist who calls himself a journalist, but has never worked in journalism a day in their life and have no journalism degree. Right. And so, no, that's not the point. The point is if you're going to be interviewed, let's have some tough questions. Let's find out what happened at Roswell, what happened at Kecksburg, what happened in Phoenix, what happened with the Flatwoods monster, all right? Why hasn't anybody questioned them about the threat narrative? And We're not allowed. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, the threat narrative? Yeah. The, oh, that's, the, that they're that's pushing. where, well, the, the idea behind the whole threat narrative is that in regards to the military aspect is these craft are coming into United States airspace and into military training areas. And they have no idea how they are getting in and out without popping up on radar. Okay. Then all of a sudden, boom, they're there on radar and they don't know, you know, it's almost like when, when something shows up in a military training or uh, session, you know, we're not, I mean, you're not playing with, with basic Legos here or stick guns or model airplanes. You're playing with multi, multi, multi-million dollar toys. And, you know, you're simulating a real combat experience. And they're also uh, incur making incursions on nuclear weapons arsenals. Okay. There's a good example right there. Okay. A great example uh, that is something that has been going on since the 1960s and, and all because of the television show and the movie, the phenomena, which is, I haven't seen it yet, but I, from what I'm hearing is phenomenal pun intended. Okay. What they are doing is they are, um, they are, they're telling these stories like they're brand new. And they aren't brand new. There's people who have been telling these stories for decades, but all of a sudden the TTSA tells the story or, you know, or the people involved with the TTSA tell this story about this phenomena happening at nuclear weapons facilities. And all of a sudden we're supposed to jump up like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're getting over the nukes. Well, to me, that shows a narrative because remember this, when you deny media requests, Okay. And when you put out old news as it is new news, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, and, and you put out a topic like the threat narrative, you're trying to control the narrative. And, you know, we see it in politics. We see it in elsewhere. When you control the, me the media, you can control the message. So when Chris, I mean, this is one of the questions that I had when I was on a panel with, with like 10 other people that Grant Cameron had put on. I, I said to the, them to this, I said, I don't care anymore what Lou Elizondo has to say, or Chris Mellon or David Fravor or Nick Pope or Harry Reid. It's not that I'm not interested in what they're saying, but when the media, the mainstream media 
or anybody starts putting a counter, I am interested to say, okay, Luis Elizondo has said A, B, C, D here. Okay. I want to hear on the other side, some balance. I want to hear from Grant Cameron. I want to hear from Richard Dolan. I want to hear from Steve Bassett, Linda Moulton, Howe, people who've been doing this forever. Okay. But the media outlets aren't covering this story very well. They never have for two reasons. Number one, they don't know how to cover this story. And number two, they've never wanted to cover this story because the idea, and, and I'm saying this from working in a newsroom and people may disagree with me on this and I'm okay with that, but I've seen it firsthand when those UFO phone calls come into a newsroom. Okay. Cause I've taken them back in the day. Okay. The media doesn't want those questions. Their idea of somebody who believes in UFOs, it isn't Stanton Friedman. It isn't Bob McGuire or people of that educational ilk. What they are looking for is they think that the person who believes in UFOs, okay, is the night shift worker at the local Walmart or 7-Eleven, okay, who makes minimum wage, who believes all conspiracy theories, including that the queen is a reptilian who is only as old as she is because she feeds off of virgin children and they wear a lot of tinfoil. They have no dental plan and they probably most likely did not finish grade 12 or even grade 10. That is the, the facade that the media has on people like you, like me, like UFO Twitter, like Richard Dolan, like Bob McGuire, like John Alexander, like Grant Cameron, and others who are out there who are trying to bring this message forward. There's a lot of smart people in this field, way more than I ever knew of before I started. And I can tell you this, the media has this subject wrong. I mean, there was a post today by Brandon Fugel, and it was the Robert Bigelow clip from uh, 60 Minutes. Now, if people, if anybody in your audience hasn't seen that clip, the interview happened, I believe, in May of 20, May or June of 2017. It's on YouTube. Okay, so just Google or go on YouTube and type in Robert Bigelow 60 Minutes. And he starts talking about uh, UFOs. And he starts talking that he has spent more money than anybody millions of dollars in researching this phenomena it was the most powerful six minutes of television that nobody watched or nobody understood the reporter's name was lara logan and she asked brandon fugel the owner of the skinwalker ranch who bought it off of mr bigelow uh put this out there uh, on a tweet put out by a person called my spooky soup Reporter, so this is Logan. Do you imagine that in our space travels, we will encounter other life forms, other forms of intelligent life? Bigelow, you don't have to go anywhere. Reporter, you can find it here. Bigelow, yeah. Reporter, where exactly? Bigelow, it's just like right under people's noses. So Bigelow goes on for six minutes about this question 60 minutes is known for their investigative reporting 
for their investigative journalism, for everything that they do about covering news, stories, angles. Next to Jesus Christ himself coming down from heaven again, saying, hey, boys and girls, I'm here. What's the biggest, second biggest story in humankind's history or future? And that is, are we alone? And if they are coming here, which thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people believe they are, then why are they here? Where are they from? Are they from the future? Are they from outer space? Are they from the past? Are they from a different time zone, a different dimension? The, the point that I'm getting at is in regards to, to this piece of six minutes of television, it's probably the biggest story in the last hundred years, or let's go, let's say 50 years to come on television and, and 60 minutes did not follow it up. Lara Logan did not follow it up. Nobody followed it up. And that's where the media continues to nip at this subject. For instance, Tucker Carlson from Fox News has done a great job at not dropping the ball on this subject. Okay, whether you love or hate Tucker Carlson, okay, and I'll tell you point blank, I'm not a fan of his. I think he's snide, rude, crass, and, you know, he's one of those faces on television I would just love to punch, you know, but, but he hasn't dropped the ball on the UFO subject, but he hasn't gone deep either. He hasn't gone deep. He's never asked, well, what happened at Roswell? What happened in Phoenix on uh, March 13th, 1997? What happened at Kecksburg? When people talk Roswell, how come they never mention the crash at San Augustine that happened on the same day? That Stanton Friedman believes the two craft, the one that crashed at Roswell and the one that crashed at uh, San Augustine, collided in midair. Why aren't those questions asked? And why do we keep seeing the same people? Like I said earlier, I want to see more than Nick Pope. I want to see more than Harry Reid, David Fravor, Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon. Granted, they're at the top of the food chain, but there are a lot of other voices and a lot of other opinions with a lot of different sources who have talked to people and have written and broadcasted and vlogged and blogged and YouTubed everything about this. And the media, like Tucker, has not touched them, not even called them. It's a disgrace. It really is. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't have an answer for any of that. And uh, those are legitimate questions. If you're hungry and you come over to my house to eat, is there dinner there? Now, if I fed you every night roast beef, mashed potatoes with peas and carrots on the side, for about a week, you would enjoy that meal because you're hungry. But going into week two that I'm feeding you, if it's still roast beef, mashed potatoes, carrots, and peas, in the back of your mind, you're going to say, I'm very thankful for this meal because I can't afford to eat, but I'm really getting sick of 
eating roast beef, mashed potatoes, peas, and carrots each night. Eventually, guess what happens? You tune out. Okay? Or or you're like, you know what? I I have an offer to eat somewhere else tonight. So I'm going to, you know, I apologize. I, I, I thank you for for this wonderful offer that I could eat at your house anytime I want, but you're tired of it. Okay. To this day, I do not eat pork chops because as a kid, my mom and dad, along with my, when I would go to my grandpa and grandma's house, every night was friggin' pork chops. At least in my memory, it was. Now my mother will say, oh, we never eat pork chops that much. Yeah, we did. I still, to this day, will not eat pork chops. Not because I don't like them, because I remember them always being there. So the point that I'm getting at is this. If you still keep hearing from the same people saying the same message on the same three videos each and every time, what happens? You get lost in the shuffle. You get tired of it. You tune out. And that's what's happening. Fox News or any of these other outlets, okay, they're not interested in hearing from Bob McGuire. They're not interested in hearing from Richard Dole and Grant Cameron. Why aren't they interested? Because, oh, guys, don't worry about it. Who do you want to talk to? We got it. That's about manipulating the media. That's what the Two the Stars Academy has done very successfully. And I'm not saying they've done it for nefarious reasons, not saying that at all. But what I am saying is there, there's a reason to it, and I want to know why. Like, if, if all of a sudden, like, in my last media request, I've been turned down, I think, 10, 11 times now, where they, you know, they don't even get back to me. They don't even get back to me now. But if all of a sudden they said, yeah, Lou Elizondo is available for you, yeah, I'm in. But I'll also say this, uh, when Unidentified came out, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, okay, when Unidentified came out, I put in a request to interview Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo, and I was referred to History Channel Canada because I am a Canadian show and they have their own PR person who handles the interview requests for Lou and Chris up in Canada. And so I put in the request and I still have the email to this day where they wanted me to provide a sample of questions that I would be asking them on the air. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I am a professional. I am a real journalist. I'm not a simple, basic podcaster here who has an interest in UFOs. My show is completely journalistic. I have never provided questions for a guest, nor will I ever. I will not base an interview. And, and all of a sudden in my head, I'm like, who the hell are you? You're not the president of the United States. You're not the prime minister of Canada. Who are you and what do you do that makes you so special that you want the questions pre-interview so you can study the questions? That's not how interviews work. That's how propaganda works. Okay. That's completely propagandist. And, you know, it, it was funny because many in the UFO Twitter world were like, were when, when I first brought that out, 
were like, uh, well, you know, they need to see the questions, you know, because, you know, they were defending it. And I was like, no, you can't defend that. You can't defend it because when you control the media, you control the message. And when you control the message to anything, that's dangerous because it means you have something to hide. Do you ever on your show, do you ever do, instead of having a guest, uh, your format, do you ever do a monologue? Sometimes I will. Okay. I have to be very, very passionate about it. And then once I, once I have the passion behind it, I have to make sure that I time myself out, that I don't get repetitive. I'm not good at it. I look at someone and love them or hate them. A good friend of mine is Rich Giordano from Goofon Radio uh, or Goofon YouTube. I don't know what he's calling himself these days. Maybe he's just calling himself Goofon. Uh, Giordano UFO Network. I love it. And um, with Rich, he is an amazing show prepper. He's got incredible imagination. He knows how to get the words out of his mind and through his vocal cords. Whereas for me, I find it difficult. Now, that being said, I never prepare any questions for my guests. Very, I think the last time I prepared questions for a guest was when I had George Knapp on the air and I really didn't want to look stupid in front of Mr. Knapp, you know? So I actually made a list of questions and followed that list of questions that I, that I went through because I was so nervous, you know, I mean, this is George F and Knapp, you know what I'm saying? I mean, fantastic. Uh, you know, it was funny because, um, I think it was around 1130, right when I was signing off after my interview with him. And I said, he's got the best hair and beard in the business. Because for some reason, I, uh, you know, one of the quirks of my show is I always point out good hair and a solid beard or goatee or mustache. Why people will always ask me, why do you do that? And the, the honest reason that I do it is because it breaks the monotony. Why can't you have something stupid, right? What does it, what harm does it, it makes people laugh. Some people get annoyed, but I don't care. I get to have a good laugh. I don't mean it out of insulting. I'll never insult anybody, but, uh, that anyways, back to topic. That's why I, um, that's why I, uh, uh, really, uh, wanted to break the monotony with George, you know, because we had a pretty serious interview regarding and i just wanted to break it and i remember i remember hearing him in my headphones laughing that i had said that and uh you know i had a really good time with him he's an i've never met the man i've only talked to him twice um but it's george f and nap you know and it's funny because i when i called him up uh i i always do a pre-show interview or a pre-show phone conversation. And I called him up and I, I'm like, hi, Mr. Knapp, this is Dave Scott. He's like, my name is George. You can call me George. I'm like, okay, Mr. Knapp, I will. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, no, I said, I, I said, I'm sorry. I can't, I, I honestly said, I said, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I said, you're George F and Knapp, right? Like I can't, you're Mr. Knapp to me, you know? 
And uh, uh, I learned uh, the reason why I do that when I was working a young reporter in hockey and I was covering the Vancouver Canucks, um, their general manager at the time was a guy named Brian Burke. And I, I took him out for lunch one day and he always referred to the Canucks ownership back then. The team was owned by a billionaire in Seattle named John McCaw. And he always referred to John McCaw as Mr. McCaw. And I, I asked him, I said, Mr. Burke, I said, why, why do you, and there was no microphones there. It was completely off the record, you know? Um, and I said, why do you uh, call him Mr. McCaw? He goes, two reasons. He goes, number one, that's the man who signs my paychecks. Number two, he says that a long time ago, he learned respect. So I, in my, you know, you don't want to feel inferior to anybody and nobody should feel inferior, but we also know there's a totem pole and if George Knapp is at that top of the journalistic totem pole, when it comes to everything that we cover, I would consider myself at least a quarter of the way down, right? Maybe more. Some people may say I'm at the bottom. Okay. But because he's at the top and he's the man that earns that respect for me. So it's Mr. Knapp. Uh, so I noticed your guitars in the background are you a musician i just love guitars and i love the sound of them uh you know like every now and again i'll pick one up i'll plug it into the amplifier i don't know what i'm doing i just tinker around to you know make some bad really bad noises and then after about 15 20 minutes i'll hang it back up and it'll be like okay that was really cool you know even uh, even bad noises from a guitar sound cool though especially if you're plugged into a good amp absolutely uh, i i have a guitar over here it's an acoustic and i play well i i can't really say i play i can make music on it but i'm not making anybody's music except for my own and to anybody else it probably doesn't even sound like music just in my head it sounds like music right oh i know exactly what you're feeling, man. I know exactly what you're feeling. And, and I just, you know, I just love them. And I just, they're such a, a beautiful thing, a piece of art. Yes. That, you know, I just, I, I don't know, man. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Guitars are beautiful looking. They sound beautiful. Yes. Can we talk about your experiences? Sure. I mean, Where I'm, do you want to go? I'm sure you've you've probably gone into detail uh, on the experiences in the past. I've never heard them. I've tried to find them on your on your YouTube channel archives, but I've never been able to to find it. So your encounters began in 2011 when you yes. had an experience with what you called the angel of death. Yes. Can you explain that to me? Sure. Uh, December 13th, 2011, I'll never forget it. It was, uh, I'm going to preface this by saying that my mother is a two-time cancer survivor. 
and she's gone through a lot of hell with that. Um, I didn't really realize it until this incident happened. Um, I lived a nice, happily boring life up until that point. Uh, I had my friends, I had my, my ways set, I had my family, um, and we were doing a, a Christmas dinner early from my daughter, um, from my previous marriage. And she was going to be going away with her mom's parents, her grandparents over Christmas and new year's on a Caribbean cruise. And so, uh, I figured, you know what? She, she's going to be gone for three and a half weeks. And I figured, you know, instead of waiting until after Christmas, for her to open up her presents and it's all over with, I figured, you know, what we'll do is uh, I'll make a, a real special night for her, uh, on her last night with me before she would go back to her mom's for one night. And then the following morning she would get up and go on the cruise. So I had my sisters over my nephews over my nieces over, uh, my parents, my, my uncle, my, my grandmother, a uh, few friends, we had about 20, 22, 25 people in the house. And we had a big turkey dinner for her, you know, like it, we just did everything up the way that you would on Christmas day. And she opened up all her gifts and open, you know, and, and we did, did a real special thing for her. And I, and I, she deserves it. She deserved it. And, um, so at about seven 45, I was in my dining room or pardon me, my living room and my dining room. It was one big room, um, kind of tidying up because people were do, doing the dishes and I wanted to make sure that, you know, I did my part to help out and clean up and everything like that. Plus it got me away from people, which is always a good thing. And so my parents announced that they were leaving because Lord knows with my parents, you can't miss a minute of dancing with the stars. You know, even on a, even on a family night and even on a night when the Canucks are playing. So, um, my mom was in the kitchen and I was in the dining room and, and my partner, Jolene, she was, uh, she was in the kitchen doing dishes and with her mom. And, and so we ended up, um, we ended up, uh, I, uh, pardon me. I, I went in from the you know, I had a, my handful of, of, of drinking glasses and everything. And my parents announced they were leaving and I was kind of pissed off because, you know, my parents could be a little selfish that way. And I put the glasses down and, and I walk into the, uh, we had this doorway separating the, the, uh, dining room from the kitchen. So I put the, all the glasses down in the dining room table and I walk into the kitchen and I kind of, my mom is right there and I kind of got my arms open. And as I crossed the threshold to the kitchen, uh, to give my mom a hug and a kiss goodbye, uh, I noticed that there was no sound coming around. There was no sound from the Canucks game on TV. Everybody was like, it was like everything just stopped. And I looked at my mom and her beautiful blue eyes were jet black 
and her pupils were white. Wow. And immediately I knew that I was staring into the eyes of the angel of death. And I remember kind of tilting my head this way and kind of like, what the, and my mom all of a sudden got this look like, oh, you see me. She then shook her head. Boom. The sound goes on on the television and my mom's eyes are blue. She comes in, gives me a hug, like nothing happened. And I'm standing there wanting to cry. And I feel immediately sick to my stomach because I know what I just saw. So I wasn't into any of this bullshit. Okay. I wasn't into the paranormal. Uh, Yes. I enjoyed the television shows and UFO hunters. I wasn't a skeptic or a denier. You know, I just, I was just, I I had an interest in, in watching the television shows. I, I didn't have an interest in learning about it or investigating about it, you know, never really thought about it. And so after the night was over a couple hours later and everybody had left our house, kids are in bed asleep. Uh, my partner says to me, let's go into the living room and relax. Cause I was rattled the rest of the night. And one of our friends that was there, she's quite psychic and intuitive. And she never asked me, but she knew something happened. She just knew she just, she's not the type of person who pries. And so I, um, I walked into, uh, or Jolene and I walked into our living room and we had, I was sitting on the love seat. There was a big square table in between and she was on the big couch across from me. And she's like, you know, let's just relax. Let's light a candle. Cause she was into all this Zen and, chi crap that I didn't believe in. And she goes, why don't you just relax and tell me what you saw? So I started, you know, doing, she put me through some breathing exercises and, and, you know, and I just kind of tuned out and zoned out. Next thing I know, I start channeling the angel of death. Um, it was 38 minutes long. There was a recording of it, but thank you to, uh, the way iTunes or iPhones uh, die, that recording is now gone. But I ended up channeling the angel of death. And and now my idea of channeling before that, and I happen to have a remote control here because I have a television right here for my studio. But my idea of channeling was grabbing the up channel and just bang, 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 you know, that was my idea of what channeling was, you know, flipping through the channels as fast as you can to find something that you watch because you're that bored. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so the angel of death said to me through me that my mom was indeed still very sick. And if we did not start taking better care of her as a family, he was going to take her home. He didn't say heaven. He didn't say hell. He, he just said, I'm going to take her home. And I asked how to keep my mother alive. Is there a way? And he said, yes, you have to show your mom more love. Everybody has to show mom more love. And we weren't treating my mother very well. And I'm man enough to say that now 
but my mother during her episodes with cancer and other health issues, she became addicted to the sympathy, but the angel of death put it all into perspective saying that mom was telling the truth and basically that we were a bunch of assholes for being selfish. So I did exactly what the angel of death told me to do. I talked to my sisters about it. I talked to my grandmother about it. I talked to a couple of my mom's friends about it. I never talked to my dad about it because my dad at the time was a real five senses guy. My sisters and I kind of joke about it now, but our family has always been one where we don't have serious conversations. You know, we're not allowed to have serious. It's all about small talk with our family. Like, like if, if we start talking something serious, all of a sudden my dad gets into the Coke versus Pepsi battle. And, and that's the truth. So we couldn't, I couldn't talk to my dad about it at, at that time. Now I could, now I could completely do it. But at the time I couldn't, um, he was just way too narrow-minded. And, um, so angel of death told me how to keep my mom alive. And nine years later, we're coming up nine years and my mother is still alive, you know, and she's now 77 years old and, you know, she's still battling some health issues like with the COVID uh, problem going on, she can't go out and do the shopping that she normally would. She, you know, she, she struggles. And, but I mean, that's what radiation and chemotherapy do. They, they beat the tar out of your system. And it's amazing to me um, that after the billions upon billions of dollars that go into cancer research on an annual basis, that we don't have anything outside of chemicals from agent orange back in world war two that could help people survive the aftermath because great. It kills the cancer and you get a few good years left. Some people live another 30, 40, 50, 60 years, if not more. Okay. But it's the side effects that really harm you. It doesn't protect you from other things. And so uh, that could end up in another whole conspiratorial talk with Dave here, but we're not going there. Um, so that's what happened is I saw the angel of death and he channeled through me. And within a couple of days of that, my house became immediately haunted immediately. It was like a doorway opened up. All of a sudden I started having premonitions that a good friend of mine who used to be a a hostess at the playboy mansion that she was going to date a famous rock star. And that ended up happening. Um, there was a lot that all of a sudden started taking place. All of a sudden I knew things that I didn't quite tune into before. And a lot of people who are way more experienced in this field than me call it fast tracking that a lot of people will get fast-tracked with a lot of different experiences that they, whoever they are, give you as much as they think that you can handle. And it was almost every night. Almost every night. And it started off with the channeling and the paranormal and 
ghosts. And I thought, Hey, this is pretty cool. I can speak to ghosts. You know, um, I started working with a gentleman named Pascal who is still to this day, my guru. And I love the guy and he is probably the most influential and important person or one of the top important people in my paranormal life. And I remember meeting with him and him saying that first conversation, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? And I said, stupidly, let's just go all the way. And it, it got to the point where every time I wanted to see something, I was given the ability to see it. I wanted to see Bigfoot. My friend and I walk into a forest behind his yard and there's two Bigfoot there. It opened my eyes to a lot. It confirmed a lot of things with what other people were saying, which is which has given me a really interesting and diverse look at this entire phenomena. A lot of people, it's funny because a lot of people, especially a few years ago, used to say, oh, this guy is bullshitting. This guy, uh, you know, comes out of nowhere, claims all of these experiences. He has no proof. He only has his word. This guy's full of it. I still have those critics today. And frankly, I don't care. You know, I really don't care. I know what I experienced. And, and you know, I've had people accuse me of saying this stuff because uh, I'm trying to get ratings or build up spaced out radio. And that's simply untrue. You know, I wouldn't do that for, for anything. It's just if you, if you knew who I was and knew the, the type of person I was, not the on-air personality, you know that I'm a pretty pretty honest and truthful guy doesn't matter how hard the truth can hurt sometimes and that's just the way it is you know and so it started off with a lot of ghosts and a lot of channeling and really working on my spiritual side of everything and then the bigfoot came and then all of a sudden pascal for about six months kept on bugging me saying you know my guides are telling me that you we need to start introducing ets to you and i said no i saw fire in the sky i know what happened to travis walton oh no 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 i couldn't finish reading communion so i am not going down that road and he's like well what if what if you don't have a choice and i said well what about my free will he goes well what about it and i went well i thought i had free will on this stuff and I don't want my free will going towards aliens. Aliens are bad. Yeah. The UFOs started coming. And started off with just blinking lights in the sky over top of my house. And, and we used to go out on our patio on a nice, uh, we used to have this habit like on a nice spring night or a fall night or summer night, we'd grab a glass of wine and we just, put our lawn chairs, lead them right back, and we'd count satellites. Well, after a while, we started noticing all of these, you know, what they call power-ups happening over top of our house or in the direction of whatever it was. At the time, we thought they were satellites flying over our house. And we would see this numerous times. Like, we'd see the satellites flying by and, Sometimes they'd be in a formation of, oh, look, there's two of them. They're going at the same speed. And, and 
look, they're powering up together. And oh, isn't that cute? Yeah. Yeah, no. And so I kept talking to Pascal. He's like, see, I told you. I'm like, no, I don't want to meet aliens. And it really culminated on April 10th, 2015. No, 2014. Pardon me. April 10th, 2014. Uh, I was driving home from work and we used to hang out with these people. They had a 10 acre parcel of, of land uh, that used to be a horse, a family horse farm. And there were only two houses on the street. This is where I saw the Bigfoot. This is where we, it, it was like a little mini Eastetti ranch there. It was like weird stuff happening all the time at this place. We hung out with these people quite a bit. And, and so my partner happens to be over there with our, our infant son. And, uh, as I'm driving there, I start realizing that I'm starting to get a migraine and I pull into the driveway. Uh, I walk inside and all the lights are on and my eyes, like I can just feel the thump, thump, thump behind my eyes. And God, I hate migraines. And, uh, then again, I don't know anybody who actually likes them, but I realized, uh, you know, I sit down on the couch and my partner says to me, she goes, do you want to go? I, oh, I said to her, pardon me. I said, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to stay. I'm starting to have a migraine. I think I'm going to go home. I'm going to, you know, turn off all the lights and I'm just going to close the door to the bathroom and, and have a, a, a shower in the dark and put a washcloth over my face, turn the hot water on. So my head was pounding. She's like, well, do you want to go home now? And I said, nope. I said, I just got here. Just enjoy your tea. I'll just close my eyes here and realize that the pounding was coming straight across here, right across here, kind of like in the shape of a square. Uh, after a few minutes of my eyes closed, I noticed that it had moved. The pain had moved to the right side of my head. And this time was kind of pounding in a triangular shape. Then it moved over to the other side of my head where it was pounding like a circle. It was weird because the pain all of a sudden just subsided. And after about five, 10 minutes of the pain subsiding, I literally started having an anxiety attack that I needed to go back in the back field of this property. And so I said to my wife, I said, I need to go back there. I need to go outside right now. She's like, why? I said, I don't know. There's something there that I need to see. I got to go out there right now. She goes, Oh, can I come with you? I said, no, you got to stay inside with the boy. And the other lady of the house who I don't really talk about anymore because she is just really bad energy. Um, she's, she looks at me and she goes, I said, you need to come with. And she, so she says to her hubby and they're no, no longer together anymore, but she says to her hubby, Dave is picking something up. We need to go outside right now. I looked at her. I said, he can't come. He's not invited. Why would I tell somebody that they can't go into their own backyard? So she goes, cause she's very intuitive. She goes, okay. So her and I quickly get our shoes on. It's one of those nights. They lived on top of a mountain 
And it was one of those nights where you had a real hazy cloud or like low cloud cover, like only a couple hundred feet. And it was really misty and, and everything. And we walked back into the backyard and we're like, kind of wondering what we're going to see. And we stop at this fence line and you could just feel the energy that something was not right. And I said, uh, she goes, well, they called you outside, try and talk to him. I said, well, what do I say? And she's like, I don't know. And I said, well, she goes, say what you know, just comes naturally. So I said, uh, out of God's peace, love, and light. Now you mentioned God, because I, you know, as much as I don't go to church and I, I don't profess to be a part of any type of religion, I do have a very strong belief in God. Um, and that's as far as I usually go in that conversation. But I said, out of God's peace, love, and light, you called us outside. Can you please show us where you are? And as soon as I said, show us where you are, bang, these lights come on from the backfield in the neighbor's property. Now, that remember, there's only two houses on this street. The neighbors are an elderly couple in their late 60s. They own six and a half acres. My friend owns 10. And there's the entire property is horseshoed by forest. And from their back area towards where the forest is, it lights up like a bright white Christmas tree. And it was the brightest light, white light I've ever seen, just pure white light. And the journalist in me then kicks in and I'm like, okay, is it somebody running around with one of those 100,000 candle watt flashlights? Could they have heard me? And I'm like, no, because at 150 yards away, the chances of you hearing me in the same volume that I'm talking to you right now are very slim to none. Okay. Do I hear people? No. Do I hear music? No. Okay. Is the light moving? No. Uh, is it moving around? Is it flickering? Well, there is a little flicker. Okay. So after 30 seconds of this, oh my God type moment, the light goes off. And the lady says to me, holy cow. I'm like, dude, this is unbelievable. She goes, well, do it again. I said, I said, if you were of alien descent out of God's peace, love, and light, can you please turn your lights back on? Boom. Lights come back on again. This time it's wider and brighter through the trees. And it's like, you got to be shitting me right now. And it was like, wow. So I started moving over to my right because I wanted to get a, a trying to figure out where this white light is coming from. What is it emanating from? Okay. Seeing if there's people moving in the light or the shadows of them, you know, I'm trying to get anything. And, and I saw something blue. And so as I moved over to my right, I noticed that through the trees, there was this blue cylinder standing vertically. And the only way it was the most beautiful blue I've ever seen. Okay. Now the trees that separated the two yards, they were probably 60, 70 foot trees. So this thing, uh, at the, you know, in comparison to the trees, this thing was probably 20 to 30 feet up. And the white light was coming from underneath it. It wasn't touching this blue cylinder. It was coming from underneath it. And this blue cylinder had this, this black cloud that was rotating counterclockwise and it would go up to about halfway and then it would come back down. And then after 30 seconds, the lights go off. The lady who's with me says, 
let's go over there. And I said, no, she said, come on. I want to go over there. I want to see this. Like I said, I said, hold on a second here. We don't know what the hell this thing is. Okay. We don't know what that is. We don't know what we're playing with. You're not leaving me here. I said, cause I'm not going back inside alone. Once this is all done, we don't know what's going on here. Like, come on, like, let's think a little bit here, you know? And so she stayed with me. She goes, fine. She goes, well, let's see if they'll turn the lights on once again. So I said, just so I know I'm not crazy out of God's peace, love and light. Can you turn your lights on one final time? Boom. Lights come on. The, the, it looks exactly the same. I can see the blue cylinder. I can see the black cloud and I could see the white light emanating from kind of underneath it. Uh, I never saw the shape of a craft or, or anything. And, uh, all of a sudden after about 30 seconds, the lights go off, but then they power on, then they power off, then they power on, then they turn off. And it did this about nine, 10 times before everything went dark again. And we're just standing in the field and we're like, oh my God, this just happened. So I'm like, out of God's peace, love and light, can you please turn it back on? I got to I gotta know, this is way too real. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. But we turned to go back to the house after about five, six minutes. And the lady looks up at, into the clouds and she sees this orange orb poking through the cloud. And as soon as I saw it, it sucked back into the cloud. And then like a white lightning bolt of the white light that we just saw just rippled through the clouds and it was gone. We did not hear any sound. Okay. Like we're 150 yards away from this. If, it, if it's, if it's an engine, like a helicopter or something, we're going to hear some sound. There is, there was no sound, nothing. So that was weird. Um, well, first of all, the, the, the angel of death story gave me the chills from head to toe. And that doesn't happen very often to me. The story that you told me about the lights in the forest, yeah, that, that one didn't bother me so much. Do you think that the, the experience with that one was a positive experience? Yes. That's, so which one, the UFOs or yeah, the angel of death? The, the UFO one, the, the yeah. lights in the, in the forest. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I don't know if it's if it's the way you were telling it or the energy you were giving off or if it was the, the experience itself, but one affected me in a really chilling way and the other one affected me as a listener of, the, of those two stories. It affected me in a way that was more calm and peaceful. Mm -hmm. I just found that interesting. That is kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't forget the one plays with our intense fear of dying. Oh, that's true. And yeah, death and point. afterlife. And one deals with the unknown. Or if you've seen a UFO, you, you, you're more calm to it. I have never seen a UFO. Uh, I, I may have had some experiences with ghosts when I was a kid. 
Um, but how do you know if those are real, right? When you're a kid, exactly, they could be false memories or any number of explanations. Absolutely. You didn't start experiencing that stuff till you were an adult. Well, I had lived in a haunted house and worked in a haunted building before. Okay. So, um, that wasn't out of the norm. It was still weird. But for this one, I like for the landing, I was panicking because remember I told, told Pascal, I wanted nothing to do with aliens or UFOs. Now, the interesting part about the third time it turned its lights on was the fact that it was powering up and turning the lights off. It was almost like it was saying the translation that I got in my head was all those times that I was sitting on my patio watching the satellites power up and down over top of my house, that it wasn't satellites at all. It was kind of like confirmation that this is, this is us. We know where you are. We're coming for you. The experiences that I have had, other people have gone public with those stories and they have been dismissed as, as being made up or false or inaccurate or impossible. And when it's happened to me, it's kind of confirmed like, yes, that really did happen to that person. So. For instance, the UFO crowd will say that those power-ups are a reflection of the iridium. There may be the iridium flares on the satellites or they're a reflection because satellites don't have lights. What we see at night when a satellite goes by is the reflection from the metal um, when it hits the sunlight because it's up so high that it can still be affected by the sun. And as even though it's dark where we are, <laughs> they're high enough where they still have the reflection of the sun. So for me, those power-ups that I was seeing watching this craft on the ground was a confirmation to me that these power-ups were indeed happening. And what we weren't were seeing up in the above our house, because it was always weird. It always seemed to happen above our house. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, way off in the distance. It wasn't, you know, sometimes it would start off way in the distance, these power-ups. And by the time it got to our house, it was like powering up. And it was like you could talk to them. You'd be like, hey, can you do that again? Flare. Can you do that again, please? Flare. Okay, can you do a double shot of the flare? flare flare you know and it got cool like it was almost a game at this point like we were communicating with them and that's what it confirmed with me right and then after that happened it, it became a game um so there's a lot of people who will say uh no dave you're wrong on that but they weren't in the forest that day in the middle of the night they weren't there they don't know what I saw. They don't understand that when you have a close encounter like that, there is a form of communication that has taken place, whether you like it or not. And it confirms a lot of the suspicions that you may have with the phenomena. So that's what I think, at least. It's easy to be a skeptic when you've never had that experience. 
it's easy to dismiss somebody's experience that oh yeah you know that because it does sound fantastical it does you know it sounds like imagine your imagination was was running away with you you had too many beers at the party earlier that night i don't know how beers would cause somebody to hallucinate like that but you know maybe there was more than beers going around at that party or something these kind of excuse or these type of explanations are what people call pragmatic explanations to these experiences that they're uncomfortable with absolutely i I think it's amazing i've never had an experience like that um and i'm not sure if i would want to you know i don't know how I would act or it throws you, it it throws you for a loop, you know, and you know, not to sidetrack or anything, but I just recently wrote a blog uh, about bad photos that how I suck at being a, how I suck at taking pictures. And so do you is what it's called. Here's why. And a week ago I was going to get my fine. I knew the snow was coming. So I knew I didn't have enough firewood for the year. So I went and loaded up a trailer in the back of my truck uh, with firewood. So my buddy Mike and I were driving out uh, into the forest in behind uh, our town. And we're on the logging road and it's muddy and it's filthy and, and it's just gross out. And we're about five miles in and 30 feet, 40 feet maybe 50 feet at the lot furthest right in front of us, a giant lynx jumps onto the road. And so I hammer the brakes and well, I'm only doing like 25, not even 20 miles an hour, like real slow. I stop my vehicle. The lynx is standing there right in front. And I'm like, dude, I got to get a picture of this. And I got my phone sitting on my dash, you know, cause they got the phone area there. So I got my, and dude, I am jumbling, trying to get my phone. This Lynx looks at me and it's like, really, dude, like I'm giving you the perfect camera opportunity here and you can't figure out that stupid phone, you know? And so the Lynx then stop, you know, I'm fiddling and I'm hitting everything, you know, Siri's popping on. I'm like, break. I don't want Siri. I want my damn camera, you know? And It was that moment when I realized that in all my fumbling and bumbling that there's no surprise as to why, unless you're carrying a GoPro with you where you're filming, there's absolutely no way you're ever going to take a good picture of a UFO, an alien, or a Sasquatch, or a dog man, or anything like that. It's just impossible because... When the adrenaline gets going and you get anxious because you got to capture this moment, your fingers turn into like all opposing thumbs and they can't talk. Your brain isn't talking to your hands properly. And so the cat went, goes into this ditch right beside me and I finally get my camera up. I push my window down. And I said, I said, Hey, puss, can I take your picture, please? Right. And the cat stops and looks at me. So I quickly am starting to take photos. I took like four of them, right? Only one turns out. And of course, thank you to the beautiful camera on the iPhones. You know, it's all grainy and looks like crap, right? So 
it's one of those things where I kind of taught, I put it into the perspective of if that was a Bigfoot or if that was a dog man or an alien in the forest, there is no way I could have captured that. I'm an experiencer. You know, this, this shit doesn't phase me. I get excited and, but there's no way that I could capture that photo. It's impossible. You know, and I'm not saying, look, if I can't do it, nobody can. I'm not saying that at all. But when I hear these people talking about, you know, well, oh, I would just, you know, like when you saw the alien in the forest, Dave, why didn't you just take a pic, grab your phone and take a picture of it? You don't think about it. I'm a, I am a photographer and I've had the same thought cross my mind just by simply trying to take pictures of small animals. You know, they, they move so quick and, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me some time ago that, uh, you know, you're, you're out there with a camera, even if you have a camera at the ready and something pops up, you still have to do some adjustments to make sure you get a good picture. You have to hold it steady. There's so much that you have to do and your mind is already swimming because of the experience that you're encountering at that moment. You know, I, I've never had an experience, but I know if I did that the, my reality would be so disrupted that thinking about taking a photograph is going to be the last thing on my mind, really, even if I had a camera in my hand. Well, and that's, and that's exactly it. It's just we, we, we don't know until we're put into that situation. And it, it's funny because a lot of people who are, non-experiencers they don't understand the pressure that actually goes around with having something happen that fast because when you much like with you photographing animals it's a fleeting moment in time it's not something that you can just stand out and say uh mr bigfoot can you just stop right there for a second i'm just going to grab a photo of you you know it doesn't work that way and you have to be understanding and cognizant of that. Uh, now, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to backtrack just a little bit because uh, you, your, your earlier experiences, you said they started coming pretty fast and frequently and you started channeling. And can you just explain what channeling is? Because I'm not exactly clear on what that is. Okay, channeling is when a spirit enters your body and you give them permission to speak through you. A lot of times people's bodily actions will change. Sometimes their faces will morph into something different. Uh, their voice tone will change. Um, their breathing style will change. And you literally can feel the spirit within you. And it's like you move on over. Like for me, it was like moving on over and having this spirit come in and you share your body. Okay. So for me, a lot of people can, or this is where your clairs come in, your clairaudient, your clairsentient, your clairvoyance and all the different clairs that there are chocolate eclair, you know, they all kind of come into play here. For me, it was like re when I would channel, it would be like, reading a a teleprompter kind of like you know at the beginning of star wars where it's all flat 
and you're kind of reading and it's going off into the distance, that's what it would look like for me. Does it still happen to you? I haven't done it in a couple of years. Is it something that you initiate or it just happens? You can initiate it. If you're in the right frame of mind, my problem is I don't have time. I, and all of this takes time. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell somebody to, because it's weird. You have to learn how to channel. Okay. Because the first couple times I did it, I, I had to have, you know, after the first time it happened, I had to have Pascal there and another lady named Samantha Mowat there, um, who would kind of walk me through it because you have to just let the words come naturally. You can't speak for it. You have to let it speak and then, you know, repeat what it's saying. How is spirits and the, the paranormal and psychic abilities related to the UFO experience? Ah, good question. I think there is this invisible thread that very few investigators are really looking into to see that this is all sewn together and interconnected. So many people remember when we talked earlier about podcasts, how everything is broken down to the finite details that people aren't looking for information. This is why all the big names in this field, like David Weatherly, like Timothy Renner, like John Tenney, this is why a lot of them are very quiet. Have you seen the, the show Hellier? Yes. Okay. I'm a big fan of Hellier. Um, I think they're on a, an incredible mission, whatever it is. I know it's weird. I know it's strange. But the one thing that I do know in talking with Greg Newkirk and Dana Newkirk and the others, they were all paranormal skeptics. They were all paranormal investigators. They didn't really get into the UFO phenomena. They weren't into the Bigfoot phenomena or the monster phenomena or anything along those lines. They just were not into it. Okay. But the one thing that Hellier has taught them is that there is this invisible thread that ties everything together, that there is this this phenomena. And this is a lot of what I believe is being studied at Skinwalker Ranch. Because if you look at Skinwalker Ranch, everything, they have everything there. They have UFO phenomena. They got monster phenomena, whether it's Bigfoot or Dogman, or they have mutilations happening. They have paranormal activity. The houses have poltergeist activity. There's a lot of portals opening up. The portals opening up. Exactly. Okay, there's a lot of that going on. Well, how can that all be in one place? So how is it all tied together? So to say that ghosts are ghosts, UFOs are UFOs, dogman or dogman, Bigfoot or Bigfoot, fairies are fairies, okay, mermaids are mermaids, uh-uh. It's all tied together as one. And the real investigators of this field aren't the weekend warriors going to say, can you please knock three times on the wall? No, they're not doing that. Okay. What they're doing is trying to find a basis to how this phenomena is happening. Okay. And how is it all tied together? For instance, there's a lot of people 
who go out there, they'll have a Bigfoot experience in the forest. And the next thing you know, they're driving home at night back to their property and there's a black triangle hovering over their house. They've never seen a UFO before, but this is happening. Or all of a sudden, you know, they pull into their house or they hear somebody walking up the stairs and they know that they're the only one home or lights start flickering. Why does this all happen? There's always a spark that causes this to happen. And this is what the real investigators out there are looking for is how is all of this phenomena tied together? Why are some people targeted and the majority of people are left alone? I don't know. But do you have a, a theory on that? Or, or have you ever thought of possibly asking whatever this, uh, this force is that's invaded your life, like just asking it to see if you get an answer from it? If I knew that, I wouldn't have spaced out radio. And I mean that with all honesty and respect. So is that why you started Spaced Out Radio? To find answers? Uh, the reason why I started the radio show was because I, the experiences that I was having were not the same as what everybody else was seeing. So for instance, when I saw the black triangle over my house, it wasn't dot, dot, dot in the three corners. No, there was these silver orbs with connecting orange rods all under the undercarriage of this thing. When I saw Carl at the window, the alien at the window, I know Stan Romanek, who is now busted for some pretty horrific things, okay? But I believe that alien at the window because I've had it happen. And I saw the big black eyes. I saw the big gray head. And it, it was only less than seven feet away from me. When I, when I look at all of these things that have happened in my life, I started the radio show because I couldn't find the answers. I could find things that were similar, but I could not find things that equated to what I was experiencing. So when I saw the alien in the forest with Samantha Mowat, five days after the landing of the UFO in the same forest, I didn't know that there were 10 to 12 foot extraterrestrials. My interpretation of aliens was close encounters of the third kind or fire in the sky with the grays or the front cover of communion. That's what I was expecting. So everything that I had happened to me, it was different than what everybody else was experiencing especially on the UFO front and the alien front. And I didn't know why it was different. I remember, dude, I would go to bed at two, three, four, five o'clock every morning because I was researching. I would go to bed at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I would sit my laptop on my, on my lap. I'd play a game of poker on poker stars. And then I would, you know, and then I get into my UFO stuff. And I would try to figure out why this is happening. Why is mine different? Why does it always have, why do I always have to be different? I remember asking myself that, why does my stuff have to be different? And the only thing that I could say is 
when you open the door to the paranormal world, as Pascal said, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? The minute you open that door and you step in, there's 10 doors in front of you. And behind each one of those 10 doors is another 10 doors each. And behind each one of those 10 doors or those 100 doors, there's another 10 doors behind each one of those doors. So the doors never stop opening. And this is what is frustrating about this. I didn't have the answers that I was looking for, that I needed to satisfy myself. So my buddy, Johnny Enoch comes to me and he's like, well, why don't you start up the podcast? Well, what the hell is a podcast? He goes, you go on the radio, man. I said, dude, you can't, just can't walk into a radio station and say, I want a show. It doesn't work that way. I worked in the business. It's like, no, man, do it digitally. What the hell is that? That's literally the conversation we had. Have you tried? I, I almost hesitate to say it because, you know, every time I ask a person, but regressive hypnosis, you ever tried that for any of the experiences? Right. The interesting part about that was I went into one regret. I've only tried it once. I went into a regressive uh, therapy or hypnotherapy. And during my relaxation where I'm trying to open up that door, I'm sitting here. Okay. You know, I'm sitting in the comfy chair and all of a sudden I hear one of my guides in my head say, I'm going to quote here. Oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> We're not doing this. You know, come on, wake up. You know, you're not going to get anything. Just wake up. Let's get the hell out of here. This lady can't handle what we're about to tell her anyways. So literally it was this lady can't handle what we're about to, what we would tell her anyways. So literally I, I, uh, snap out of it and I said, excuse me, ma'am. And she goes, yeah, I said, this isn't going to work. She goes, why? I said, uh, my spirit guides won't allow me. She's like, okay. She goes, I understand that. We'll try again. I've never tried again. Oh, okay. I do want to try it though. I do. I, I have this morbid curiosity because I know I've been taken about six times, maybe seven. Maybe there's more. I don't know. I don't know if I was taken as a child, as a young adult. I don't know. Right. But I know I've been taken five, six, seven times. And I do have this morbid curiosity to learn about what happened. And uh, it's kind of cool and interesting to, to say that I really want to find out. I really, really want to find out. I mean, like your, your experiences, they're hard to believe. Okay. And I'm not saying that to, to throw stones at you or anything. I, I believe what you're saying, but it's very hard to believe that. I want to, can I ask you something? Oh, sure. Cause you said something that, that just kind of piqued my curiosity. Uh, you said that the stories are hard to believe. Okay. Now, I know you're not saying that in, in an obtrusive or insulting way. I do understand that. What I do want to ask you is this. 
what would be the harm in believing the tale? There is no harm believing it. Although it does challenge one's existing belief paradigm. So that's where the, the difficulty is. You know, I, on one hand, I believe, and it's not me. I mean, I'm saying most people would have trouble believing these stories. For me, it's not a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm open to believing just about anything unless I, I get a, a vibe off of somebody that right. they seem like just a crazy person. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, and I don't get that vibe off of you just for the record. <laughs> okay. No, no, it, it, because the, the reason why I ask is in this field, we, you ever notice that every paranormal team has to have the resident skeptic? Why? Shouldn't we all be skeptical of the phenomena that has happened to us? Skeptical? Yes. So I always find that funny. Like, for instance, if, I'm, if I want to interview a paranormal team, there's a few things that I look for. I look to see, do they have a resident demonologist on the team? Because then I know they're BS. And I also have a good laugh when I see someone who has to put in their, in their bio or something that they, they are the, the team skeptic. If you really need to have a team skeptic, that immediately tells me your team is full of shit. Just so you know, paranormal people out there, yes, I'm looking right at you. Your team is full of shit if you have to have a resident skeptic. Okay? Because you should everybody should be skeptical of their own of their own experiences. That way if you're skeptical of the of your own experiences, you'll know right from wrong. So let, let, let's rewind it a little bit. Cause I, I wanted to ask you this question about the, there's a lady that I had on my podcast sure. who is a psychic medium. Her name is Sandy Lene. She's a friend of my, or she's a sister of my neighbor. Anyway, this, this is really her story is what kicked off my journey into taking my podcast in this direction. But the, the way it relates to your story is because she's never experienced the alien part of what, what, what we're talking about. But she has had encounters with evil entities. And she had some, the evil entities that um, this lady had encountered. And I mean, they were, they actually at one point attacked her with this one being attacked her and held her physically by the throat and with multiple witnesses around her and they had to basically drag her away from the area where she was being attacked in order for the attack to stop um it's a it's a interesting experience and uh have, have any of your experiences been like evil or, or in a really negative way yes and is that do you think that they are do you think that the, the aliens are, are evil or do you think that that's a different, I guess, I guess it's all speculation, man, but what, what are, what are your thoughts on the evil part of this whole phenomena? There are some horrific experiences happening out there 
that I don't think that anybody would want to happen. Uh, I have had one experience that I literally uh, do not ever want to have happen again. I don't really talk about that experience. It, uh, it scares the living daylights out of me. I get angry. Don't like it. I know my partner was there because I saw her there. I knew there were other people there because I saw other people around on this, uh, craft. It was just, it was not fun. And, uh, it was, uh, it's a difficult time. I talk a little, I'm writing a book right now of all of my experiences and I get into it a little bit there, but I don't go into the full detail of what's happened, nor will I, that's between that entity and myself and what, and you know, me being a former hockey player, I always have that don't get mad, get even type of attitude, but in this one, I am mad and I will get even it's uh, just something that you know, I do believe that there are some horror stories out there, whether it's, you know, poltergeist activity, whether it's malevolent type spirits, whether it's aliens that are rogue or bad or whatever, you know, it, it's happening. It, it really is happening. And we need to believe this. I mean, I know there's one lady who I've interviewed before Karina Sables, where her entire family, including now her grandchildren, are being taken by these beings and it doesn't stop. She's asked them to stop, but it does not stop. So yes, they are happening and it's uh, not fun. So your, your negative experiences, well, the, the one you told me about the angel of death, that was pretty scary. It was scary, but it was still positive because my mother is still alive. Yes, that's true. It was a, positive message right it was a wake-up call that's what it was is it was a wake-up call the the experiences that you've had that were of a negative nature were they on the spirit side or on the alien side or both alien side now i have met probably one of the weirdest experiences that i had uh with a negative spirit now I've been attacked by ghosts and everything. It's not fun. Um, you know, but the paranormal side of everything really doesn't bother me. One of the cool things that I saw was, uh, we back at the farm, we were with some friends and, uh, we had seen a spirit cross the way and friends were in the forest. And my, uh, I was standing with one of my friend's wives. And we were kind of walking towards this, this sign, the street sign. And the reason why we were walking towards it was because there was a shadow person standing there. And as we started walking towards that shadow person, that person transformed into a shadow bear and it looked like there was a, a, a bear running at us. So her and I actually took off thinking that there was a bear right there. And then when we turned and looked, 
it was gone. Just disappeared. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. And as supposedly shadow people are completely different than ghosts or demons or, or, or aliens shadow people are kind of an entity of their own. Right. I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of digging on your own to find answers. Uh, that's why I watch your show. I, I enjoy your show. Mm-hmm. And, um, but going back to your uh, experience, we, we kind of got off track because uh, I started asking questions, but after the craft landed in the forest, you said that five days later, you, you came in contact with the first ET. Yeah. So five, I, I didn't sleep for five days. You know, it was hard to sleep because, you know, when I have an experience, the journalist in me kicks in. And so immediately what I want to do is I want to research. I want to, I, I have immediately a thousand questions in my head. So at that point, I really didn't sleep for five days. And on the Tuesday, uh, the lady of the house at the farm called up my partner and said, Hey, we've met, we're going to have coffee tomorrow in the afternoon. Uh, do you guys want to come? I want you to meet someone. Her name is Samantha. She's a lifelong ET contactee. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's, um, you know, really got her stuff and knowledge and we could probably learn some stuff off her. Yeah, not a problem. So I happen to have the day off. We went over there. It was like one o'clock. We were meeting for tea. And, um, so we go over there and, you know, you get through all the small highs. How are you? And everything. This is my first time back at the farm since this incident. And I'm kind of pacing around and Samantha picks up on my energy and she goes, you want to go outside, don't you? In front of the ladies. And I said, yeah, she goes, you know, cause I just told her what, what had happened and, 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 uh, with the other lady and I, and, and she goes, well, do you mind if I come with you? And I said, sure. She goes, cause maybe I could pick up on the craft and I can maybe get some answers for you. I said, okay, not a problem. So this is one o'clock in the afternoon or now two o'clock in the afternoon. It's beautiful blue sky out and the dogs are running around. The farm had two dogs. And I used to bring my two dogs over to run with their dogs. I mean, 10 acres for dogs. I mean, that's just paradise city right there in, in being able to, to run around and, and make things look kind of cool for the dogs. You know, they get to play and get some exercise. So Samantha and I go to the back of the house and we go to the back field past where I was standing, uh, where, when the craft had landed. And I'm kind of showing her, she's like, okay, don't tell me. I want to try and pick it up. She goes, I'm getting it from this area over here in the neighbor's yard. And I'm like, yeah, that's where it was. And so we're just kind of meandering around and and trying to pick up the energies and things like that, try and get on the same page. And I'm trying to explain to her what we saw, the angles of where I saw it. And so anyways, um, Samantha all of a sudden stops me in the middle of the field and she goes, Hey, Dave, 
do you want to walk back into the forest with me? And immediately I knew, I knew there was something there. And I said, what the F, why not? After seeing this, uh, she goes, you know, we're probably going to see something. And I said, yeah, I know. And she goes, but I don't know if we'll actually see anything because from what I know, aliens don't like dogs and there's a good chance that the dogs are going to follow us into the forest. So we thought about taking the dogs back to the house and kind of locking them up for a few minutes until we walked back into the forest. And, but we decided against that. We just continued. And of course the dogs run way ahead of us and they run up to the entrance from the farm to the forest. And, and, uh, there's a little gate that used to have a door there, but our gate door, but it's no longer there. And the dogs run into the forest and Samantha and I follow in behind them and her and I start walking and we see the dogs running around in the forest and her and I keep walking. We get about 50 yards in and Samantha stops me and she's kind of looking around a little perplexed and I stop and I'm like, everything okay? And she's like, Dave, where's the dogs? All four dogs were gone. Don't know where they went. Four dogs. So what do we do? We keep going because that's what stupid humans do. You keep going, right? This is like a horror movie. So we walk another 50 yards into the forest and Samantha stops me and she gets about 18 inches away from me. And uh, she goes, Dave, I don't want you to be afraid. And she goes, but I want you to look that way. And she points North. She goes, I want you to tell me what you see. So I take a deep breath and I turn and I look and I, pardon me, I'm going to be vulgar here for a minute. And she go, I said, Samantha, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that, Samantha? And I kept repeating that over and over and over again. Because 200 feet in front of me, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, eyes wide open, there's a 10 to 12 foot extraterrestrial standing there staring back at me. So people always ask me, well, what did it look like? It was tan in color. I saw the head. I saw the neck. I saw the body. I did not see any arms. I did not see the legs. I know it changed color. Okay. It changed from a, a light creamy coffee color to a darker quarter horse slash giraffe color. And Samantha, what I didn't know at the time was that there was a second entity there. And Samantha starts telepathically communicating with the second entity. I'm glued on this guy. And I always like to say this. I wasn't scared of it. What I was scared of was my entire paradigm had officially changed. I'm 40 years old soon to be 41. I have always believed and brought been brought up that if you're good, you go, uh, there's a God, there's a, there's a devil, there's a heaven, there's a hell. If you're good, you go up. If you're bad, you go down. But in all of my parents, teachers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends, mentors, hockey coaches, baseball coaches, music coaches, whatever it may be, nobody ever told me what do you do when you're 40 years old and there's an alien standing 200 feet in front of you? 
I was petrified. I was mortified. I didn't know what to think. I was scared. I was in awe. I was proud. I was happy. I was like, holy cow. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was like, holy cow. That, that would be the most incredible experience ever. Well, put it this way. It's like if you're holding a book. I have it in my notebook here, so it has some writing on it. I can't really show it too much because there's phone numbers on here. But it's like holding a book like this, okay? And this booklet here has your entire life story, your rules, your regulations, everything you've been taught to be a good human being. And then a stranger just walks up to you and says, I'll take that and starts ripping it up, okay? Right in front of you. You feel lost. So Samantha's telepathically communicating with this second being that I don't know is there. Because I'm so focused and staring, my eyes will not, I don't even think I blinked on this guy. I'm watching this guy, trying to figure out everything that I can about it. And Samantha says, they're talking to me. And she goes, they're saying that it's okay if we go up and meet them. They're not here to take us. They're not here to harm us. However, they're really worried about the man's health. Well, it's only Samantha and I in the forest. And I know she's a girl or a woman. And I know I'm a man. And when they're saying that they're concerned about the man's health, they're definitely talking about me. So Samantha's like, do you want to go over there? I said, no. And she's like, why not? I said, I don't want to. Please do not make me go over there. And she's like, well, you don't have to, but I'm going to. I'm like, no, you're not. We don't know what the hell this is. Samantha, you do not leave me. I am not walking back 300 yards to the house alone because these aliens grabbed you. She's like, we got, we got nothing to worry about. They're not here to take us or harm us. I said, we don't know what their agenda is. You know, I'm like, literally, I reached into my back pocket, pulled out my man card, you know, and I, and we, she finally, so I was feared. I was scared. Okay. I was scared. And she stayed with me. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for it at the time, but looking at it now, if I could ever relive that entire situation, I would handle it so different. I would have went. Yeah. And, you know, we stood there and watched this thing for about 15, 20 minutes. And it wasn't until four months later when Samantha was getting a, she wanted to include this story in her, um, uh, in her presentation that she was going to be doing at a UFO conference. So she asked me to come over so we could, so we, I could tell her about what her and I went through. And it wasn't until then, when we sat down four months later, that I actually learned that there was a second being that she was communicating with. She wasn't communicating with the being that I was looking at. She was communicating with a, a five to six foot tall alien gray, but a tan colored gray. 
So were the, do you think they were different species? No, they were. I don't know. I, okay. I didn't see that guy. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's hearing the, hearing the retelling of that experience is I, I'm a very visual person. So I am visualizing everything that you're telling me. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like it being in a dream listening to it you know i mean for me that's what it feels like it feels like i'm i'm dreaming hearing you telling me about this no it was scary yeah it was a good scary but that was also the first time that i learned and what confused me was the fact that they were concerned about my health oh that's right remember i i saw fire in the sky hollywood wouldn't lie to me would they <laughs> right right even so, even uh, Travis Walton has came out and said that the experience, as negative as it was, he felt that they weren't there to hurt him, right? Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's part of part of the whole issue that I have with it. Okay, is the fact that that wasn't, in my opinion, supposed to happen. They were the, supposed to be the big, bad aliens, but they weren't. They were concerned about me. Did you go get a physical or find out, you know, if you had anything wrong with you physically? No. It almost leaves me without words just to, just to hear that story, because even after your experiences, have you ever listened to somebody tell a story that is so far out there beyond what you can accept as real question that what they're telling you is even possible. I host a show like that. <laughs> I know. I know. But I mean, bar barring the, the crazy people, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you guys do some vetting process to, to see, you know, to pick and choose the, the guests that come out, come on. What do you say to somebody when you hear a story like that? And, uh, or, or you hear their experience, they believe it 100%. You know, they're, they're not lying to you. This is something they actually believe. That's actually a good question. This is, uh, this is what I say. I believe you. Two reasons. Number one, I've never stood in your shoes. Who am I to call you a liar? Now, hosting the show, I'm going to know pretty quickly if somebody is exaggerating or not. There are little telltale signs, and it's no big secret, but you can tell when somebody's making something up. Okay, number two, I've never st stepped in your shoes. I don't know your experience. I know what I've experienced. So who am I to tell you with not really knowing you as a human being, not knowing your purpose, not knowing who you are or anything like that? Who am I to sit there and boldface call you a liar? Because here's the thing. The majority of people who are having these experiences, the majority, they don't want to be public. They don't want to, to be ostracized 
They just want answers as to why, because this is emotionally affecting them. Even if they have had positive experiences, they just want answers. Why them? Why are they being taken once a week? Why are they being taken twice a week? Why have they had my lab experiences because of it? Why all of a sudden, you know, you know, people have lost jobs over this. They've lost families. I mean, I can tell you right now, I have lost friends over this. Some of my best, longest friends of 20 plus years, I've lost over this because of my commitment to spaced out radio and my belief in these subjects. There are people who don't want to talk to me or associate with me anymore. And these were people that I, well, the one guy, I mean, him and I were best friends for 28 years. And he told me I went nuts and to F off and never talked to him again. Right? Yeah. Um, that's hard. I, you know, and you can't really, I guess everybody's going to react to it a different way. But what people forget is that empathy is what allows you to connect with other human beings. And if you don't have that empathy for an experience that they've shared with you, you that connection is going to be lost. Oh, it sucks. It, it really sucks. I mean, that's somebody that, uh, that I absolutely loved. I mean, he's the godfather of my child, of my son. And, you know, not much I can do except say, you know, thank you. I, you know, doors always open. I, even though, even though intuitively I know he's never coming back. I just know that. Right. And all so, you're doing, all you're doing is trying to find answers. Yeah. But this is a lonely existence. It puts a lot of strain on people. And when you have these experiences, when you have this, this happen to you, you didn't ask for it. Nobody asked for it. Nobody asked to, to be haunted. Nobody asked to be having ET contact. Nobody asked to see Bigfoot. Well, some people have. Okay. But the point I'm getting at is, especially with ET contact, it scares people because A, they either don't want to believe it's real or B, it scares them so much they deny it's real or C, they're so wrapped up in their own little world that there's no way it could ever happen or ever could be real. So when somebody whom you trust comes up to you and says, this is what happened to me. Your first reaction is defensive. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. And when you bought, you know, it's like, it's like when you eat something you don't like, you don't buy it anymore or you don't try it anymore. Um, how many that's the wrong question. Would you, cause you can't speak for other people, but you've had the experiences and, and 
the fallout from those experiences has in sometimes been negative Mm -hmm. with with everything you know and and everything you've experienced outside of those encounters would you take it all back and not want this this path in life to have ever uh come come in into your life 100 percent. you would rather not have ever experienced any of this true wow i lost a lot of good friends you know um that's an emotional question yeah that's a that's a hard-hitting emotional question because it's personal and i don't usually talk a lot of personal stuff um So my answer to that would be, I would give it all up right now. Everything, the last nine years, I would give it all up to go fishing with my friend one more time. Mm -hmm. Get up at four in the morning, get up at, you know, get up at three 30 in the morning, pick him up, be at his place by four 15 race down to McDonald's to grab couple of uh breakfast uh, burritos and an iced tea and some hash browns and race down to the river to our favorite fishing spot so we could get there before anybody else set up a fire wait for daylight or an hour before daylight so that when we could start fishing i would give it all up in a heartbeat to have that one more day of fishing with them and uh I don't care what it would cost me if, if I had that choice to give up this radio show or to have my friends back. Um, I'd give it all up. And by the way, nobody's ever got that out of me. Well, thank you for being honest and, and for answering the question. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh. That's a tough question, man. That's a a very deep and tough question and an emotional question uh, that, yeah. And it's not just that, too. It's not just him. It's the amount of birthdays, the amount of parties, the amount of dinners, the amount of nights that you want to continue, but you can't because you got to do a damn radio show uh, that hit home. Now it's, I'm used to it, but you know, you have company over and, and, you know, even when my own parents come up and it's like, Oh, well, it's seven 30. I got to go into the studio. Now I'll talk to you tomorrow. And it's like, yeah, is it worth it? Is the, not getting paid to do this. Looking at all the time you've put in and the effort and the, you know, I'm not even getting into the social media trolling and, and the people who don't know you calling you an asshole or a liar or a faker or, 
or an exaggerator or people accusing you of being homophobic or, or racist or anything like that. Do I need it for free for something that I'm trying to build here? No, no, I don't. I just want to go fishing with my buddy. I want to read my son a bedtime story. Like, like, uh, there are times when I'm sitting in the studio and I can hear through the vents, you know, cause, uh, you know, or I walk upstairs to grab a drink of water and I can hear my son reading his bedtime story to his mom. And all I think about is I wish that was me. Right. And this field is so callous and angry and, and ruthless at times, not all the time, but at times that they forget that there's human beings on the other end. You know, they forget that there is, that there is a person who has feelings, who has, uh, who suffers, you know, my case, I suffer from depression and anxiety. I'm very open about that. Okay. I'm not one of these people, you know, one of these men who thinks, oh, I can't talk about that. You, you don't talk about that stuff publicly. Screw that. I have a mental disorder. Right. Yeah. Talking about it is probably the best way to combat it. Right. You know, I mean, if I was really given that opportunity to go back in time to never do this show, when Johnny Enoch wanted to meet with me on October 2nd, 2014 to discuss this, I wish I would, there are a lot of times I wish I would have said no and instead went with my friend to watch Slash with Miles Kennedy and the conspirators because I had a ticket to that that I turned down. How would life be different if I would have went to that con concert instead of meeting with Johnny and starting a radio show and committing to a radio show? Now, when I say that, I don't begrudge starting the show. I don't begrudge having this interview with you or being almost six years into spaced out radio. I don't begrudge that at all. I don't begrudge the, the amazing and awesome people that I have met or the people who tune into me every night and are part of the chat rooms or, or, you know, you make a difference. We are making a difference. I, you know, every now and again, I, I get a note from a listener that is very, very personal as to how this show helped them get through a very tough time. I, uh, you know, I, I remember one listener uh, telling me how his father had just passed away two days previous and he was up and he needed something to take his mind away. And somehow through Google had found our show and he tuned in and he's been there almost every night since, right? You made it, we made a small difference in helping that person's life because he didn't know how to live with, without his dad. You know, I I've talked to people who, uh, I talked to a corrections officer 20 year, big, tough corrections officer who was suicidal because out of the blue alien gray started taking him to the point where he wasn't sleeping for days 
because he was afraid they were going to come and get him. He was getting to the point where he didn't want to live anymore and had a gun ready to go to his head. And then he found the show and realized that he wasn't alone. It's never in our chat rooms, but I know he tunes in almost all the time. And every few months he'll message me and he'll give me an update just on how he's doing. I mean, there's a lot of those stories that I've had over the years. I remember one woman uh, talking to me about how her husband left her for another woman and she was all alone and, and living in a big house, didn't know how to cope, found the show, found our chat room, made some online friends, made her feel worthy again. There's all of these little stories that come out and everybody has a story. And this is why when someone tells me, hey, Dave, can you check this out? I took this picture, what looks like a fairy in my house. Or somebody says, hey, can you check out this this video that I got from my security camera? What do you think that's flying back there? Or I got this picture from my bedroom of a shadow person. What do you think that is? You know, that's why I have no problem saying, I believe you. Because those three small words have a huge amount of power in helping somebody cope and understand that they're not alone. Because maybe they don't have that opportunity to talk to friends. Maybe they don't have that opportunity to talk to their bosses. Maybe they don't have that opportunity or can't afford counseling to learn what it was. Maybe they just don't know. Maybe they're afraid. And we provide that. So as much as I would say that I would give everything up to go fishing with my friend one more time, and I would, there's a hell of a lot of benefit that has come along with hosting the radio show because it is a, it is a very personal aspect for a lot of people. They're there for a reason. Some, it may be entertainment. For others, maybe it's knowledge. For others, they just don't want to feel alone anymore. They don't want to feel that they're the only ones who are going through these experiences, and we allow them that venue to let them know through other experiencers that it's okay. We believe you because they may not have had anybody say that to them before, and that's the power of it. That's a great positive message, and I think that's a good place to for us to end this episode. And Dave, I believe you. Thanks, man. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and I thank you for sharing those experiences with me. Uh, I appreciate you uh, asking me to do this, man. I, I really do. It's very rare that I get asked. All right, Dave. Hey, have a good night now. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Take care. You too, man. Take care.